Good morning. Uh, my name is Matt Morton. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace. I'm usually over at the Anderson campus, but uh, occasionally they let me out. Uh, if you are here to hear Blake this morning, I am sorry. Uh, I try to come over and hear him myself, but every time I do, they make me do something, so I don't actually get to hear him. But uh, I'm thrilled to be here with you all this morning. We're going to be in Judges chapter 6, verses 1 through 32. We're starting a short series on the life of Gideon. I'll do week one today, and then Blake will pick up with the rest of the life of Gideon for us next week. Uh, but let me begin by just sharing you, with you a story from my own childhood. Uh, we had just one dog growing up. The whole time I was growing up, we had one little dog. His name was Brownie. Uh, he was brown and small and uh, about this big, brown, furry, nicest dog you would ever hope to meet. Loved to play, loved to slobber, loved to do all those sort of things. Lived in the backyard. Uh, we didn't let him in the house. And one of the reasons was, although Brownie it was extremely nice, he was dumber than a bag of hammers. Uh, if you let him into the house, he would eat chocolate, make himself sick. He did all kinds of things that he should not do. I've read about dogs that are smart. Uh, read about dogs that can track their way home from Canada. Uh, I actually literally read about a dog that got home 77 miles away from home, got lost, found his way over the mountains back to his house. Uh, read about another dog six years after he got lost. He tracked his owners to their new residence and found them. Uh, Brownie was nothing close to that. All right. If he got out in the front yard, it was like he was in a whole new planet. Okay? He would walk out in the front yard, and immediately he had no idea where he was. If someone left the gate open, he was gone. So he would just wander off and be gone, and the first person he saw, he would follow them home. Uh, no matter how, who they were, they could have been nice, they could have been terrible, he would follow them home, he would go to their back porch, curl up on their back porch, at which point we would usually get a call from someone going, I think we've got your dog. So we'd drive over, we'd pick him up, we'd put him in our yard again. A couple weeks later, same thing. Get out, totally lost, someone else's yard, drive him home, he'd get out again. Uh, I don't know why we didn't get a better fence, but this happened all the time, right? <laughs> now as I think about Brownie, I think about the story of the Bible, and here's why. Because as you look at particularly the history of the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, God calls them out of slavery in Egypt. He provides for them, he protects them, he takes them under his wing, he cares for them all the time, and then they run away and they chase after idols. And so God steps in and he redeems them and he brings them back to himself, and then they run away again and again and again. All right, that's the story of the scripture. It's particularly the story of the book of Judges, which we're going to look at this morning. You get this cycle going throughout the book of Judges, where the people of God will fall into idolatry. God judges them. Usually he judges them through another nation who comes in and oppresses the people of Israel. They cry out to God out of remorse. Now, not necessarily true repentance, but because they are under oppression, they cry out to God. And so God sends a deliverer and rescues them from their enemies, and then they do the same thing again. As you read the book of Judges, this happens over and over and over again, seven or eight times in the book. That's the story of God's people. It's not just the story of God's people in the Old Testament, actually. It's the story of humanity. When you look at the earth that God has created, when we look at the world around us, what we see is God has made 
human beings to know him, to worship him, to serve him. He's given us an earth to live on. He's given us the opportunity to relate to him, and yet the world runs away, chases after every idol imaginable, whether it is ambition and greed, whether it is an actual idol that we worship, whether it's another person. Everybody chases after these idols, and God steps in over and over and over again to redeem and say, I am the way that you can have life. The only way that you can have the life you are seeking through these idols is by trusting in me. And ultimately, of course, we see that the grandest act of redemption occurs when he sends his only son, Jesus Christ, who died on a cross, and as we celebrated just last week, rose again so we can have eternal life. All who believe in him have life. And so God reaches into this world that's running away and provides redemption. But what I find interesting is, as you read through the Scripture, You also see that although God steps in, although he's the initiator of redemption, he doesn't immediately save everybody at once. And in fact, when Jesus dies, when Jesus rises again, you trust in Jesus. Have you ever wondered why then does God not take me immediately to heaven? Right? That would be awesome. That's where I want to be. That's where we're all headed. And the reason is because as you look at the scripture, not only does God step in and redeem in the midst of this terrible cycle, but he calls sinful, weak, flawed people just like you and me, to be his representatives of that redemption, to step into a broken world and proclaim that in him there is new life, that because of what Jesus has done, we have an opportunity to know him and to praise him. If you're like me, you feel inadequate for that task. You look at a world that is broken, and you see your coworkers your neighbors, your family, chasing after idols, living in sin, and experiencing the devastating consequences of that. And you say, God is calling me to step into the midst of this and proclaim his mercy, but I'm afraid. Or I'm sinful. Or I doubt he's really with me. Or I'm fearful. That's exactly the story that we see when we look at the life of Gideon. As we walk through Judges 6 and the next week Judges 7 and into Judges 8, you'll see a story of really a normal guy, just like you or me, whom God calls to deliver his people from sin and sin's consequences. And it's a story that still speaks to us because that's still what God does. That is still how God is working. And so you are probably sitting here, if you're like me this morning, going, I know that I am called to be God's ambassador, but really, I just want to get through the day. Right? If that's you, you'll relate to Gideon because that's exactly where he finds himself. And yet through the power of God, Gideon becomes an agent of God's redemption in the world. So let's look at Judges chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 1. What we'll see is that we begin, and the setting is one of the devastation of sin. Chapter 6, verse 1. Then the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hands of Midian seven years. And the power of Midian prevailed against Israel. Because of Midian, the sons of Israel made for themselves the dens which were in the mountains, and the caves, and the strongholds. For it was when Israel had sown that the Midianites would come up with the Amalekites and the sons of the east and go against them. 
So they would camp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel as well as no sheep, ox, or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come in like locusts for number. Both they and their camels were innumerable and they came into the land to devastate it. So Israel was brought very low because of Midian and the sons of Israel cried to the Lord. Now it came about when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord on account of Midian that the Lord sent a prophet to the sons of Israel. And he said to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, it was I who brought you up from Egypt and brought you out from the house of slavery. And I delivered you from the hands of the Egyptians and from the hands of all your oppressors and dispossessed them before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord, your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not obeyed me. All right, right at the beginning, we see this principle that sin devastates these people, right? Verse one tells us they did what was evil. So God gave them into the hands of the Midianites. This is actually the fourth cycle of idolatry and judgment that has happened in the book of Judges. We're only at chapter 6. It's a long book. And it's happened four times. These people again and again and again run away from God. And they experience this devastation. I was an engineering major in college. In fact, your pastor Blake and I shared many classes together. And uh, there was one student, one fellow student in our classes who would arrive uh, to class almost every day looking like he had not slept in a month. Uh, he, He would be unshaven. His eyes would be bloodshot. He would be tired. We would say, what is wrong with you? And he'd say, I didn't go to sleep until three or four in the morning and then had to get up for an eight o'clock class. We go, well, what were you doing? You say, doing my homework. And we look at each other and go, now we have the same homework that you have, but we're not up every night that late. What's going on? And as we asked him these questions over time, what we discovered was that he would actually play uh, video games until about midnight and then begin his homework. And of course, he was tired. It took him longer than it would have otherwise because it was the middle of the night. He would work until four and then just crash, go to sleep, get up again at seven or 7.30, go to class and do the same thing the next night again and again and again. It was like he never learned the lesson that the pain was intended to teach him. Imagine putting your hand on a hot stove and you go, ow, ow, hot, right? Over and over and over. That's the story of the people of Israel. And so God judges them through the Midianites. The Midianites are a traveling nomadic group of people who live in the ancient Near East. And here's what the Midianites would do. They would come up on their camels. If you were in the ancient world, camels are kind of like tanks. If you don't have camels, you're in trouble. If somebody else has camels uh, and you don't, you're going to lose. And so the Midianites would come up with these camels and they would wait until the crops that the Israelites had planted were just coming through the soil. And then they would send their camels down and they would push the Israelites off the land and then they'd send their livestock behind to eat all of the crops that the Israelites had planted. Year after year after year. For decades, this goes on. And the people are oppressed by the Midianites and it's judgment because of their sin. And so they cry out to God. And God in his mercy sends them a prophet. And the prophet says, look, you are experiencing this because of your sin. 
It says the Midianites would come in and they were like locusts in number. I grew up in the city, and so I've never really seen a plague of locusts, but I have read the Little House on the Prairie books uh, with my daughters. <laughs> and uh, there's a description in one of those books of a plague of locusts, large grasshoppers that came in right as the crops began to grow. And uh, Laura Wilder describes it as a glittering cloud of locusts that covered the sun. It was black as night. They came in, they ate every green thing, and then they disappeared. And that's what the Midianites do. And God sends a prophet to the people to say, this is happening because you've run away from me. I took you out of Egypt. I provided for you. I cared for you. And you ran away. And you chased after idols. And God in his mercy and grace tells them why they're being judged. And then he's going to send them a deliverer. And that man is named Gideon. And Gideon is aware of the devastation, we'll find out. But he hasn't yet taken any steps to remedy it. As I read this passage, I see a lot of parallels between the world that they are living in and the world we're living in. It doesn't take long to look around and see that we live in a world that is similarly devastated by sin. That the people you know, the people I know, are chasing after idols whether it's pleasure, whether it's immorality, whether it's a desire for prestige to climb the top of the ladder, whether it's greed, whatever it may be, people chase after these idols and what they ultimately find is devastation. Relationships are destroyed. We experience physical and emotional consequences because of our sin and worst of all, distance between us and God. We live in a world that is devastated by sin. And I have to ask myself as I read this, do I notice the need around me when I walk in my neighborhood and I talk to my neighbors? Do I think about the fact that they need the redemption that God has provided in Jesus? When you go to work, interact with your coworkers, do you notice the need and the devastation that is wrought by sin and recognize that in Jesus Christ, you can offer life? God's going to call out this guy, Gideon, and say, Gideon, I want you to step into this world devastated by sin and be my ambassador of the redemption that I can provide. All right, so let's keep going. Chapter 6, verse 11. Then the angel of the Lord came and sat under the oak that was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizrite, as his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress in order to save it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. Then Gideon said to him, O my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord looked at him and said, Go in this your strength and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. Have I not sent you? And he said to him, O Lord, how shall I deliver Israel? Behold, my family is the least in Manasseh. I am the youngest in my father's house. But the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat Midian as one man. So Gideon said to him, If now I have found favor in thy sight, then show me a sign that it is you who speaks with me. Please do not depart from here until I come back to you and bring out my offering and lay it before you. And he said, I will remain until you return. 
Then Gideon went in and prepared a kid and unleavened bread from an ephah of flour. He put the meat in a basket and the broth in a pot and brought them out to him under the yoke and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened bread and lay them on this rock and pour out the broth. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord put out the end of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened bread. And the fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread. Then the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. When Gideon saw that he was the angel of the Lord, he said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. And the Lord said to him, Peace to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and named it, The Lord is Peace. To this day, it is still in Ophrah of the Abias rites. All right, so Gideon is just this normal guy. He's really a farmer, and he lives in northern Israel. Now, his name, Gideon, actually means hacker. Not like a computer hacker, all right? But it means a guy who is a warrior who's going to cut down the enemy. But he's not quite there yet. All right, what we see in Gideon is a very flawed hero that God calls to step into the world and be a deliverer to his people. But Gideon has some problems that we see right away. All right, first one is this. Gideon is afraid. He's fearful. Now, if you're not paying close attention, you could miss what is happening right at the beginning of the passage. And that is that Gideon is beating out the wheat in a wine press. All right, what does that mean? Again, I did not grow up in an agrarian context, so I had to do a little bit of research on this. Ordinarily, what you would do is you would stand on top of a hill in order to separate the grain from the chaff when you harvested the wheat. So uh, you could have animals trample on it to separate out and loosen the grain. Often what they would do is just take the, the grain and they would just flail it on the ground to loosen up the grain from the chaff. Then standing on top of the hill, they would toss the whole thing up in the air. The wind would carry off the chaff and the heavier grain would fall to the ground and they would pick up that grain and carry it away to make bread or flour or whatever it might be. Gideon is not doing it that way, though. He is hiding in the wine press. The wine presses were usually built in an excavation or a depression on the side of a hill or down between two hills where you would have one depression that was further up on the side of the hill and another one lower down. You'd beat out the grapes and the juice would run into the lower depression in the rock. So here's Gideon hiding essentially in a little cave to try to thresh his wheat because he's trying to save it from the Midianites. He's afraid. Now it's at this point that the angel shows up and the angel has been sitting there, we don't know how long, watching him And then he steps forward and he says, God is with you, O valiant warrior. All right. Now there's a lot of irony in that statement, right? He is at his most fearful moment. And this angel steps up and says, God's with you, valiant warrior. None of us wants to be caught at our most afraid, at our weakest moment, do we? Now when I was... In college, I lived in a house for a while uh, that was overrun with mice, and uh, I hate mice. Uh, And I'll just confess right here, I'm afraid of them. I I know that technically there's nothing they can do to me. They're smaller than I am, uh, but I still am afraid. In fact, a few years ago, some of our interns thought it would be funny to put live mice in my office under little cups. Uh, I could not deal with it. I had to go get one of the other pastors to take care of it, and I'm still a little bit embarrassed about that to this day. I'm afraid of them. And at night in this house in college, I would go to sleep and I would turn off the light, and if I woke up in the night and had to go to the bathroom, I would try to make it from my bed to the light switch in one leap. 
because I was afraid there might be a mouse on the floor. So imagine that you come in and you find me cowering on the edge of my bed, afraid of a mouse on the floor, and you say, Hail, mighty slayer of mice. (laughs) Oh, brave one. Right? That would be a joke. That's what happens here. The angel comes in and says, Hail, valiant warrior. He's not making fun of Gideon. Instead, he's challenging Gideon to something more. That you have the heart of a warrior. And more importantly, because of God, you will be a warrior who will deliver the people. All the way through the story, all the way through the narrative, Gideon demonstrates that he is afraid. He's afraid after the angel leaves. He's afraid he's going to die. He's afraid before he goes into battle. He's afraid when he has to pull down the altar to Baal that we'll see in a moment. Gideon is afraid at every stage in the journey. If you feel afraid to do the will of God, if you feel afraid to speak the truth of the gospel to those that you know, you're in very good company. Periodically, with uh, the college students and interns that I've worked with over the last several years, we'll go onto campus and we'll share the gospel with students. Every single time, I feel afraid. Every single time. Every time that I'm speaking with a family member, a friend, a neighbor, and I sense the prompting of the Spirit to share what Jesus has done, I'm afraid. Yet God calls Gideon, God calls us, despite the fear, to trust in Him because our power comes from Him, not from our own bravery. So Gideon is afraid. Not only is he afraid, he's also uh, doubtful. Verses 13 to 14, he says... Oh, my Lord, all right, and literally what we see is it has the idea of, excuse me, Master, excuse me, Lord. If the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? In other words, you say that God is here, but I look around and I see this devastation. If God is here, angel, then why is all this happening? Why have you not delivered us? The Lord's abandoned us. You know what the angel's response is? I love this. The angel goes, "Uh, haven't we sent you, Gideon? Reassuring, right? Gideon, you are the answer to your question. God is delivering the people from Midian. It's going to be you. At this point, Gideon uh, says, how am I going to do that, right? I'm the youngest in my father's house. My clan is the least in Manasseh. The Lord says, I'll be with you. You will defeat Midian as one man. So Gideon goes on. He says, if I found favor in your sight, here's what I want you to do. Prove to me that you're really an angel of God. And Gideon doubts Not only that he can do it, but he actually doubts whether this is God's angel. So the angel says, all right, I'll hang out. You go prepare an offering. He goes, he prepares a young goat. He prepares some unleavened bread. Probably takes him a while to do that. I've never cooked a goat, but I would imagine this takes a while. The whole time, the angel waits. Then he comes back and he sets it on the rock. And I love this. The angel takes his staff, touches it. It goes up in flames, and then the angel disappears. And Gideon at this point goes... That was the angel of God, right? But he doubts God's purposes and he doubts God's presence. And again, I relate to that. My guess is that every person in this room, even if you profess faith in Jesus Christ, you've struggled with doubt. You wonder if God is present. You wonder about God's power. You wonder maybe even if he exists at times. 
And as you walk through the scripture, we don't see doubt as being incompatible with faith. In fact, often people of faith still struggle with doubt because uncertainty is a part of our existence as finite beings. And yet God works with Gideon's doubt all throughout this narrative and calls him to trust and draw closer in the midst of that doubt to do his will. Uh, Philip Yancey in his book, Reaching for the Invisible God, says this, doubt is the skeleton in the closet of faith. And I know no better way to treat a skeleton than to bring it out into the open and expose it for what it is. Not something to hide or fear, but a hard structure on which living tissue may grow. If I asked every person to stop reading whose faith has wavered, I might as well end the book with this sentence. Everybody in this room has struggled with doubt, just like Gideon. One of the the best illustrations in the Gospels is this man in Mark 9 who comes to Jesus with his epileptic son. He says, Jesus, can you heal him? And Jesus says, I can't. Everything is possible to the one who believes. The man says, I do believe. Help my unbelief. And that's the attitude with which those of us who are fearful and doubtful are called to approach God. Gideon's like you and he's like me. He wonders if God can do it. God says, I'm here. I'm present. And even in your doubt, you draw into me and watch what I do. Not only is he fearful, not only is he doubtful, he's also insecure. See this in verses 15 and 16. O Lord, how shall I deliver Israel? Behold, my family is the least in Manasseh, and I am the youngest in my father's house. But the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat Midian as one man. Gideon, very frankly, says, Not only do I doubt God, I doubt myself. I'm young. Who's going to listen to me? Uh, My clan is the least in Manasseh. Who's going to listen to us? You want me to step forward and lead these people? They're not going to look to me as a leader. And the answer is, God will be with you. When we had our first daughter, uh, she's now eight and a half years old, but I remember in the hospital, and those of you who have kids can probably relate to this, I I was in the hospital and it drew closer to the time when we were supposed to go home. A day or so before we were going to go home, I saw another family leaving with their child and suddenly it hit me, they are going to let us walk out of this hospital with a person, right? (laughs) And I'm responsible to care for her. Uh, I have killed every plant I've ever tried to care for in my life, right? They make you take a test to drive a car, but you can walk out with a human being, right? And I remember thinking, I can't do that. I have no idea what I'm supposed to do. I wish I could say that I felt more certain of what I was supposed to do even to this day, right? It is a constant exercise in trust because of insecurity. Gideon says, I can't do this. I'm not a warrior. I'm not a leader. I don't have what it takes. Maybe you relate to that. I'm not really great with my words, maybe you say. I'm not tall enough. I'm not good looking enough. I'm not charismatic enough to tell people about Jesus. I'm sinful. I still struggle with pride and lust and anger, greed and all of these sins. Who am I? God's answer to Gideon, God's answer to us is God is with you. Work is not done because of who you are, but because the power of God working through you. That's Romans 8. The spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies. For those who know Jesus Christ, the work is not done in your strength, but in his. 
So it turns out, and not to steal too much thunder from Blake next week, but you find that Gideon doesn't actually do a whole lot of fighting as the narrative goes on. Gideon doesn't prove his strength. Every stage in this process is God using Gideon to display his power. So he says, Gideon, you walk with me and I will do the work. As you and I step into a sinful, broken, devastated world, it is God who does the work so that we can have an impact for him. And so you have this flawed deliverer. And what God does with Gideon next is he challenges Gideon to just take one step of bold obedience. All right, look at verses 25 to 32. Now the same night it came about that the Lord said to him, take your father's bull and a second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal, which belongs to your father, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it. And build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of this stronghold in an orderly manner. And take a second bull and offer a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah, which you shall cut down. Then Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had spoken to him. And it came about because he was too afraid of his father's household and the men of the city to do it by day that he did it at night. When the men of the city arose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was torn down, and the Asherah which was beside it was cut down, and the second bull was offered on the altar which had been built. And they said to one another, Who did this thing? And when they searched about and inquired, they said, Gideon the son of Joash did this thing. Then the men of the city said to Joash, Bring out your son that he may die, for he has torn down the altar of Baal, and indeed he has cut down the Asherah which was beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal, or will you deliver him? Whoever will plead for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself, because someone has torn down his altar. Therefore on that day he named him Jerubael, that is to say, let Baal contend against him, because he had torn down his altar. I love this. Gideon, after the angel of the Lord had appeared to him, Gideon had built a private altar in his own backyard. But there's another problem. Gideon's father has a huge altar to Baal with an Asherah next to it. Now, let me explain what this is. Baal was one of the deities that they worshipped in the ancient Near East, right? The Amalekites and the Midianites and the Canaanites who lived around them worshipped Baal. Baal was a god that somewhat resembled a bull. And Asherah was his consort. Asherah was the fertility goddess who was his consort. And so they would often put up this Asherah statue next to an altar to Baal. Now here's what God says to Gideon. You cannot move forward and lead my people in faith in Yahweh when you've got an idol in your own backyard. So you need to pull it down. Not only is he called upon to pull it down, but notice what God says. I want you to take a bull and I want you to pull down the bull God's altar. And then I want you to take the bull and sacrifice it on a new altar right where the old bull god's altar was. And then I want you to cut down the Asherah pole and take the wood of that Asherah and use it as kindling for the bull. You see what's going on? This is a complete desecration of Baal's altar. God says, it's not just that I want you to tear it down. I want you to demonstrate that Baal is nothing because you cannot lead my people if there's an idol in your own backyard. So Gideon says, okay, and this is typical of what we see with Gideon throughout this passage. He does it at night, right? And you can't really blame him 
because the whole village, when they find out what he does, they say, we got to figure out what's going on. Uh, it's Gideon. Somehow they figure out that Gideon did it. There's, uh, we don't know how, but they find out that Gideon did it and they say, we got to kill him. Now Gideon's father steps up and Gideon's father, it was his altar, remember. But to save his son, he says, look, why do you need to defend Baal? If Baal's a god, let Baal go after Gideon himself. And nothing happens to Gideon, right? And they name him, let Baal contend against him. If Baal is a god, let him contend against him. And what God does is he says, Gideon, it's not enough to build a private altar. I want you to take a step of public obedience to me and align with me in a way that the people will see, not that you're strong, but that you're loyal to God. And we struggle with that. He does it at night. This reminds me of, frankly, when I was in high school and even in college. I wanted to do the right thing. I wanted to pursue God, but I really didn't want to be thought of as uncool, as a freak, as whatever it may be, right? So I prayed. I read my Bible. I tried to keep on the moral side of things. But like Gideon, many of us are afraid to take that public stand. That's what God calls Gideon to do. God is going to move through Gideon, though, step by step by step at each phase to give him the strength and provide for him the protection that he needs to pursue God and draw others to pursue God. He doesn't put Gideon in the hardest situations right away, just like with you and me. But he does say, Gideon, now that you know who I am, now that you know that all the work is done through me, I want you to step forward. Share with your community, share with your family that you're going to pursue me publicly align with God's purposes. And that's the obedience he calls him to. Because the idolatry that is in Gideon's backyard would prove to be a hindrance to doing God's work. And so God will often call you and me to say, I'm going to change the way that I arrange my life, maybe in a way that others see. Not because I'm great, but because God is powerful in me. And so maybe that means I change the way I spend my money, the way I spend my time, the way I speak, how I view my work, because these things in my life have become idols. And God may push us just to that next step to say, I want you to align with me what you say, what you do, where you go, so that he can position you to have an impact. And so as I read this passage, one of the questions I think it poses in my life is will I boldly obey God's call on my life? I often feel insecure, afraid, doubtful. Those are normal parts of the human experience until the day we see Jesus face to face. But God has called us to step into the world Proclaim that redemption comes through Jesus Christ, that his death, his resurrection are the way to life. There is no idol that will provide it. And the more we chase after them, the more devastation will occur. That's true of us. That's true of the lives of those who sit next to us at work, in classes, in our neighborhoods. So God calls us to step forward and say, I will be a representative of that redemption, even though it's hard, even though I'm afraid, to take one step forward. I've had the opportunity working with students to see 
Some of them in fear, but also in faith, take those sort of steps. Some of them say, you know, I'm not going to work 100 hours a week. Say that to their employer, risking perhaps their advancement in their career, but say, I think God has also called me to go to church, to love my family, to do other things besides sell myself out to this company. Time and time again, we've seen God bless those decisions, not necessarily with monetary gain, but with relationships with God and others that are a light to the world. I've seen students say, and adults say, I'm going to take some of my time, maybe some of my vacation time, and spend it serving or going overseas to share the gospel. Again, not because I'm great, because I want to see what God can do when I submit my life to him. So that's the call, to step into a broken, devastated world and simply proclaim that Jesus Christ died and rose again so we can have life. And everything we do, the way we arrange our time, our money, our work, our relationships, is designed to do that so that we have that moment to say, I do what I do, I say what I say, because God is in me. And what we'll see next week as we look at the life of Gideon is how God positions Gideon there. Because he's simply willing to trust, God positions Gideon to have an amazing impact in the lives of his countrymen and in the future of his people. Because he's willing to follow God, even when it's scary, even when he's afraid even when he's insecure. That's God's call on our life because of Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for your word. Father, we pray that you would protect us from ever thinking that we are strong enough or great enough apart from the power of your spirit to have any impact for you. But instead, let us simply trust. And then as we trust you, I pray we would take these little steps of faith, even though they're scary. Maybe it is for somebody in here that there's a co-worker or a family member who needs to hear the gospel and you're calling them today to proclaim it. Maybe it is for some that there is an idol that needs to be torn down. Maybe some have built their lives around their finances, around their career, around their reputation, around their grades. And you're saying, I want you to no longer build your life around those things, but to see how in every aspect of your life, can please me. Father, I pray let us set aside those idols, proclaim Jesus Christ, pursue him so that a world broken by sin can know of the forgiveness you offer in him and the life you promise. We thank you. We pray all of this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Have a wonderful week.